You've got questions, we've got answers, phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Us on the line of fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. You've got questions. We've got answers. If we don't have them, we'll do our best to get them for you. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-347-7884, the number to call. Anything of, of any kind that relates in any way to areas of expertise that we have, Ways that we can be of help to you. Great. If, if you want me to discuss the digestive system of the worm, sorry, it's not my area of specialty. Or the digestive system of the mole, for that matter, of the fro- or of any being. That's not my area of specialty. If you, if you want to discuss with me the history of Western China, sorry, can't help you there. But any things where we can help, by all means, give us a call. 866 866- Three, four, truth. And let's see, our phone lines are ringing rapidly, and we will get to everybody as soon as we can. Okay, on yesterday's broadcast, I said that I was going to give a quick update on what's happening with God TV in Hebrew in Israel. And if you haven't been following what's been going on, just check my website, sdrbrown.org. Look at recent videos, articles that address this. But Right now, everything is being deliberated by the Israeli government. From our vantage point, all documents are in order. They are kosher or kasher, as we would say in modern Hebrew. They are in proper order. Everything is being done in explicit, explicit harmony with the law, nothing deceitful. And there is absolutely no reason why the channel should be shut down. A Hebrew-speaking channel sharing the good news of the Messiah in Israel. Nothing coercive about it. Just flip it on if you want. Don't flip it on if you don't want. And about 70% of the content is uh, being produced by local Israeli Messianic Jews. So it's created a firestorm of controversy and a, a whole lot of reasons for that. But just pray for God to open doors that no one can shut. In the meantime, we are having open doors to share our faith and interact in ways that are unprecedented. So all for the good, despite a lot of the pressure and negative publicity, all for the good in terms of we can further share our faith in an open and honest way. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Oklahoma. Eugene, welcome to the Line of Fire. Good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. So I just have a quick question regarding... Um, confidence. I was raised in um, a condition, I guess uh, an environment where um, I was often bullied and um, struggled with ADHD, so it affected me socially, and mm. basically not having a whole lot of friends, and um, you know, just basically literal interaction, and when the interaction was there, it wasn't very healthy. It just kind of further exposed the fact that I didn't really know how to communicate, and it destroyed 
my self-confidence. And God set me free from so much of that through um, a vision I had when I was stationed in South Korea, through uh, Psalms 139 and Hebrews 12, and that's amazing. But one thing I do kind of struggle with today, sir, is confidence, I guess. Like, I don't shame myself. There is no heavy sense of low self-esteem. I know that there's nothing wrong with me as a person, but having no experience in communicating with my peers, I find it difficult to be confident because I actually don't know how. Mm-hmm. And um, I was told to just go out there, experience life, and you'll gain, the, um, you'll gain the understanding of how to do those basic things. But I'm just wondering, Dr. Brown, I have every reason to be confident regarding spiritual matters. I've studied the Word of God. The, the Spirit of God is in me, but how do I be confident when it comes to something as simple like, it might sound silly, but, you know, talking to a girl I might be interested in, or, or trying to make friends, I don't really have that type of confidence, and I'm wondering, yeah. how can I find confidence rooted in Scripture that will help with that, sir? Right, so first thing is, you have to just consistently, daily, keep putting your life in God's hands, reminding yourself and reminding Him that He's your confidence, that He's your strength, that he's the one that you're trusting, that you know your weakness, your deficiency, and just, Lord, help me to be the man you want me to be. Help me to be kind. Help me to be compassionate. Help me to be strong in my faith. Pray over the, the godly qualities that would, would make you a, a good friend of someone, that would, would make you someone that, that you, your future wife would be interested in. In other words, pray Christ-like qualities over yourself. Pray for... You know, go through passages like 1 Corinthians 13 or Colossians 3 or or 2 Peter 1, where there are lists of things, qualities of love or qualities of godliness. And and, and I would pray over many of these passages daily for months and months and months, especially as as a new believer. So you want to pray for that more than anything. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, yes, you do have to go out and start being around people, but what you do if you don't feel at ease, then that's part of who you are. In other words, you tell someone, boy, you know, I'm, I'm not really that confident in relationships. I, I just uh, don't get to hang out a lot. You know, I, I, and, and that's part of who you are, which now people begin to interact with and, and, and begin to, uh, uh, begin to uh, like you in that way and, and draw you out. And then over time, you, you, know, you develop confidence in those areas. And you don't have to compete with somebody. Maybe you'll never be the social butterfly that lights up the whole room or the one that just loves meeting new people all the time. Maybe you'll have a smaller circle of relations, but those can be deep relations. So I would concentrate on being godly and being Christ-like and praying into that. Uh, I read through Proverbs a lot, you know, just in terms of wisdom and things. You know, it's better to wait and speak than blurt things out. But then just be honest, you know, boy, I'm just never really gotten to interact this way or, you know, and, and, and it is part of who you are and someone's going to be a real friend will we'll draw that out and, and strengthen that relationship. May the Lord bless you and give you the confidence you need. Thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. All right, uh, an anonymous call. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Um, thank you for taking my call. I am a Christian who's uh, been married to an Orthodox Jewish man for two years. Um, he refuses to live with me for a lot of different reasons that are related to being Orthodox and um, is is not um, taking my calls or, or text messages, not responding. And um, I didn't know if 
this would be bu- biblical grounds um, for a divorce or um, what my options are. I don't know if you can speak to this, please. Uh, yeah, well, obviously you have to be sure before the Lord out of any steps that you take in this particular way. Um, did you marry him knowing he was an Orthodox Jew? Yes, and he knew I was a Christian. Uh, all right, so uh, how do you feel about that decision now? I, st- I feel perfectly fine with that. I I believe it was the Lord that brought us together, absolutely. Okay, so in your mind that wasn't being unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Not in the same way as a marrying a non-believing Gentile. Got it. Yeah, so let, let me be candid with you. Uh, I would have counseled—you want me to be honest, yes? Uh, Yes, please, please. Yeah, I I would have absolutely counseled against the marriage and said, absolutely, it is light with darkness, no matter how sweet or nice the man may have been. He is fundamentally, to the core of his being, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, and ultimately, in his view— you are believing in a, in a false Messiah, even if he thinks it's okay for Gentiles. So whatever drew you together, the deepest issues, namely spiritual harmony, weren't there. So this was, in that sense, uh, an accident waiting to happen, barring miraculous intervention and him coming to faith. This was an accident waiting to happen. Um, what I would say is you should f- uh, carefully study uh, 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter that does speak of an unbeliever departing and the believer not being bound in that sense, which means bound to that marriage, in which case there is abandonment by the unbeliever and the potential of divorce. The problem is you went into this with your eyes open. In other words, you made a covenant before God with your eyes open, knowing he was not a believer and thinking somehow because he was a a religious Jew that it would be different. Of course, it's it's not, remember, just in the New Testament, the fiercest opposition to the gospel was fellow Jews opposing other Jews who believed. So I would just uh, encourage you to go before the Lord honestly. I would urge you to recognize that you, you did make a serious error going into this, uh, and now you're bearing the fruit of that. So to me, there would have to be some repentance in asking God for forgiveness for making that decision. Again, it, it's, it, here, they're children of God, and, and they're those who are not children of God. Children of God will be with him forever. And as we understand it, it's only those that come by way of, of the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, having done that, is there release and the possibility of divorce based on 1 Corinthians 7? You'll have to really look at that carefully and think that through. It's within the first 20 verses that, the, that Paul has the discussion. So may the, the Lord give you wisdom and grace. I don't say these things lightly. I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's important that that we're honest in this way. So may, may God work in your heart. May God bring your husband to saving faith and may his will be done in this, in this area. Hey, thank you. Thank you for calling and, and trusting us with such a difficult personal question. And friends listening, we've got our prayer team out there. Our prayer warriors just pray for, for this couple, for God's will, for God's best. Hey, um, be, before we get to the next call, uh, uh, President Trump has issued ruling that churches are essential, Uh, houses of worship, so he's not just saying churches, essential. He's calling on governors to open them up. Uh, He said the governors need to do the right thing and allow these very important essential places of faith to open right now for this weekend. If they don't, I will override 
the governors. Now, there should still be wisdom in terms of how things are done. Health issues should be evaluated depending on what place you're in and what the situation is where you are. So that should still be done. But as much as President Trump can say and do a lot of things that bother me, that grieve me, that even embarrass me, when he does things like this, it reminds me of why I voted for him, because in many cases, the governors, mayors are going too far and are not treating churches and other houses of worship fairly. In other words, they'll They'll open a gym or a restaurant, but not a church. Why? Makes no sense, especially if social distancing is being practiced. So appreciate the president's move there very much. Back to your calls on the other side of the break. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Mark in Florida. Thanks so much for calling the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. Yeah, thank you for, for receiving my call. Um, I have, I have, a, I have two questions for you. I don't know if, if I'm allowed to ask two questions. Well, let's see how long they take. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the first one is my denomination, Seven Day Adventist. They teach is that um, the Archangel Michael is Jesus Christ. Is another name for him or, or whatever. But it's just from my study. I'm, 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 I'm a student of the Bible. From my study in the Bible, I found that teaching is not true. What yes, sir. About that. Well, yeah, there's not a stitch of evidence for it. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. But Michael is clearly distinct from Jesus. Michael is not the creator. There, there's, there's nothing even that associates them. And, and uh, Michael is just like Gabriel, a, another exalted angel, but not to be worshipped, not to be adored, not to be bowed down to. So there's, there's not a stitch of, of biblical evidence to support that. At no point is Michael ever associated with Jesus. At no point is Michael ever associated with creation. At no point is Michael ever called God. So it's it's a very serious error to be categorically rejected. Um, 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 their, their biggest Bible verse to use is Revelation um, 7 verse, or 12, verse 5, 7, when, when, when the Bible says um, um, Michael and his angels. They they say that um, Michael, like Jesus, only can have his own angel. Michael cannot have his own angel. So yeah, where where did they get that? If you have organized, if, if Ephesians six twelve tells you in the demonic and satanic heavenly realm that there are principalities and powers that this is, these mm-hmm. are organized forces, where in the world that you even have a hint of that? Plus, in Revelation twelve, Jesus is pictured in other ways. Jesus is pictured as a child and things like that. He's not pictured yeah. as an angel fighting in heaven. So yeah. it's, just, yeah. it's just, it's absurd. It's, it's beyond absurd, really. Yeah, I think, and, and I think because I'm from, I'm from Haiti, and I think in, in Haiti we worship, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we worship Michael. 
And yeah, I think that if this is blasphemy, that's what I think. And yes, sir. No, it, it, it is. No, that's and that's he, something that should drive you right out the doors, to be candid. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And my second question is, um, they have this teaching about Daniel 8, verse 14, where it says, for unto, um, for, and it says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Um, they they teach is that this 2,300 days is when Jesus steps into the whole, the most holy places in 1844. And I found this teaching kind of absurd because it makes no sense that now, Jesus waited until 1844 to get to the most holy places. No, you're you're exact you're exactly right. There's serious error, and like I said, there that should get you out the doors and, and into a, a place that, that preaches the gospel fully and, and rightly and holds to biblical truth. Look, you know what happened. They really thought the end of the world was going to happen back then. And when it didn't, yeah. they had to come up with another explanation. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was coming in 1914. And when that didn't happen, they have to, well, 1914 was actually this or actually that. So mm-hmm. when you step outside of it and look at it, yeah, you can see the complete absurdity of it. And again, it's just this is what happens with, with cults or with groups that, that mix error with truth or here esteem Ellen White as a prophet. Now, I, I know Seventh-day Adventists that are, that are born-again believers and that don't worship Michael, and uh, despite some of the error, they are believers. But then for yeah, many yeah. others, it's, it's an erroneous cult. So, yes, yeah, sir, I would, I would find the door and, and get yourself into a, a place that— uh, preaches the gospel. If, if Seventh-day Sabbath is very important to you, you feel that that's something from the Lord, uh, then, then look for a Messianic congregation, Messianic Jewish congregation that will worship on the Sabbath, uh, but will not have any of this other baggage. Hey, God bless you, man. Your thinking is 100% clear on this. Totally clear. Thank you. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to Brandon in Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Michael Brown, can you hear me? Yes, I can. <clears throat> All right, very well. I, I'm, I'm a fan. Just wanted to say that uh, right at, at the start. Um, my question is about end times eschatology and the Jewish temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I take it that you believe that it, it is a literal temple that the Bible is speaking about uh, in the end times. I, I expect that. I'm not dogmatic on it, but as far as I can tell, that for prophecies to be fulfilled, there, there will be a third temple that's built before, before Jesus returns. Okay. And then um, I, I think that I, I saw you in a documentary at one point uh, where they were talking about the Jewish temple was never actually on the, the Temple Mount, but it was actually built in the city of David. Um, no, it wasn't me. Confirm? It wasn't me. No. It wasn't you? No. Okay. To my knowledge, it is the Temple Mount. Now I'm not an expert on it. In other words, I'm not I'm not an archaeologist, and that's not my primary field. <clears throat> but I've never been persuaded by arguments that it's not in the Temple Mount area. So how in the world are you going to build a temple there in the presence of the Al Aqsa Mosque? How's that going to happen? You you can't. The the woman have to be removed. Which if that happened would create a world war with Muslims. So the right. Joe Rosenberg idea in him believing in an Islamic Antichrist, that his theory is that this will be part of how the Islamic Antichrist wins over the Jewish people. 
and and now right. is seen as this miracle peace worker and says, hey, you can you can demolish the mosque and build your temple here. And wow, wow look, he brokered peace with the Muslim world. So I mean, it's, it's a plausible theory. As as uh, I don't have I don't have a lot of theories in terms of how things are going to work out. So Joel's theory is a plausible theory. Okay. Yeah, I'm just uh, I was just curious um, because if it if you did hold to the belief that it was you know built in the city of David, I was just curious as to what it might take to get you know Jewish rabbis to uh, get on board with that because it, theoretically they could start uh, building immediately. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be right? Yeah, I mean th- theoretically you could say the the big issues are that there were many Orthodox rabbis, ultra Orthodox rabbis who opposed the modern state of Israel, and who still do, and they, for a number of reasons. One was that this is what the Messiah will do when he comes, he'll regather the exiles, and that to do this is to do something premature that will actually hinder the coming of Messiah, and will even stir up world anti-Semitism, etc. That's why some still oppose it to this day. Plus, they said it would be a secular state, not a Torah-based state, so who needs that that would pollute the Jewish people? So that's why they had those objections, and some still have those objections to this day. Now, in the same way, many say, okay, we accept the state of Israel, but the Messiah will build the temple. And if we try to build the temple, then we are doing something premature, and we are getting in the way of the Messiah and incurring God's anger. So that's a big reason that there is not an initiative to do it, because it's believed that the Messiah will do it. Some say, well, we are helping speed the coming of the Messiah by getting the process going. And that's, that's the debate. But the normal expectation is Messiah will build it. Some even expect it will come down from heaven. There are some Jewish traditions to that effect, but most would think the Messiah will build it. Hey, Brandon, thank you for the questions. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. I won't have time for another question before the break, but we will be going to, let's see, Sid and Stephen and Paul and James. Ladies, remember... Phone lines are open for ladies as well, 866-348-7884. Now, some would say, ah, ladies, they're not into, like, Bible study as much or apologetics as much, and that's what I don't call as much. Or it could be they know all the answers and don't need to call. Yeah, (laughs) there's always another another angle to consider. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, let's get started on a question and I'll answer on the other side of the break. Sid in Texas, let's, let's hear your question and then I'll try to answer on the other side of the break. Go for it, sir. Yes. Uh, Dr. Brown, I, my question is in the chapter eight of the book of Acts and it talks about the Samaritans coming to faith, but they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, but not have received the Ruach HaKodesh. I was wondering why did they not receive the Ruach HaKodesh? If you're baptized in the Lord of in the Lord Yeshua, I was baptized in a non-denominational church, and I felt I had to receive the Spirit. So how come they didn't receive the Spirit and had to wait for the elders to come down from Jerusalem to, yeah. to lay hands on them? And so why did Paul question. ask in Acts 19 the believers he met from Ephesus, "Did you receive the Spirit when you believed?" My understanding, sit in, in in keeping with Pentecostal theology is that the moment we're saved, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not empowered by the Spirit in terms of the baptism of the Spirit with supernatural empowerment to be witnesses. Pentecostals understand this is subsequent to salvation, and this is one of the passages that we point to, 
that the Samaritans were born again, so therefore the Holy Spirit indwelt them. They were children of God, but they had not yet received the Spirit. This was something manifest, tangible, either with tongues or prophecy or something that would make clear that they, in fact, had received the Spirit. And then when, when Peter and John laid hands on them, Simon the sorcerer actually saw, wow, you received the Spirit. Something actually happened that would be in harmony with, with Paul asking in, in Acts 19, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Or the believers with Cornelius in Acts 10, that when they began to speak in tongues, Peter said, hey, they've received the Spirit. They've been baptized in the Spirit. How can we not baptize them in water? Uh, others who are not Pentecostal would say, no, this is because the gospel is going to new places, Samaria, and, and then Gentiles, and then those who had been under John's baptism, and, and it had to be kind of sealed in an apostolic way. But that's not how I read the text. So the moment we're saved, I understand we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. We are indwelt by the Spirit, but the baptism in the Spirit, being immersed in the Spirit, being filled and powered with the Spirit, is something subsequent to salvation. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. You are listening to our Friday edition or watching our Friday edition or by some form taking it in. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. I just want to clarify something from a call that just came in before we got started here. Uh, it is possible, my belief as someone who is Pentecostal in theology in terms of the belief in the baptism or empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that the moment you are saved, you are baptized in the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. I believe in many cases, most cases, it is subsequent to salvation that someone is then empowered by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. But either way, the last thing I want to do is divide over that. My issue is let us walk in the fullness of the power of the Spirit. Regardless of when, how, let us walk in the fullness of the power of the Spirit to glorify Jesus. This is about His glory and for the edification of the body. 866-34-TRUTH. And we start in Florida with Stephen. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how have you been? Very well. Extremely well. Thank you. Good. Hey, I'm, I'm calling you on behalf of my heart and the concern that I have for some friends okay. regarding sin and sanctification. And um, I believe they might be in error in some way, but I mean, I might even be wrong, so I need to state that point. Um, we got on the topic of sin and sanctification and how through our lives, God will continue to transform our heart and mind to be more like Him. And as we go into the knowledge of Word and abide in Him, we are able to, uh, let's say, resist or, or flee from temptation easier, while they're under the belief that they do believe in sanctification, but by the time you're older, a true believer will be made perfect person who doesn't sin, a person who is completely made whole, and they were beating me up with 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 5 
regarding this. And, um, well, I was giving the life of Paul and basically everybody else who lived but Jesus until they died. Right. As far as my knowledge knew. And, yeah, so, so here's, um, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I, and, and I've never met any human being that, that lived perfectly. And in fact, those that claim they do, the moment I pressed them a little bit, lost their temper with me. <laughs> but where first thing to push back is where does First John three say anything whatsoever about growing, or maturing, or being older in the faith? Doesn't simply that you cannot continue in sin because the seed of God remains in you. So what First John is is saying that if you are truly a child of God, you will not live in persistent rebellious disobedience to God. You can't because you're a born-again person. You'd have to walk away from the Lord in order to do that. But he's already established in 1 John uh, 1, 9, and then in 1 John 2, 2, 2, 1 and 2, that we might still sin. The rule of our lives is living for God and serving God. But he makes clear in 1 John 1, 9, that, that if we confess our sins, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So, so really, verses 8 through 10 make that plain. Even, let me back up, 1 John 1, 7. If we, if we have fellowship with God, right, then, then we are walking in the light, and the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from all sin. That is continuous in the Greek, that even as we're walking in the light, we're not yet perfect. And then if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then what does it say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins in Greek, that is ongoing. This is part of our regular relationship with God. Then, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then chapter 2, verse 1. If I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Messiah, the righteous one. So this is, we are told to grow. We're taught to grow. We are to pursue holiness we are to cleanse ourselves from everything that, that defiles flesh and spirit. We should grow in grace. We should look different today than we were at a different time in our lives. We should be more self-controlled the longer we're in the Lord. We should more, be more compassionate, more Christ-like, and on and on and on. Yet, we're always going to have battles. We're always going to have temptation. We're in this world. We're in this flesh. Not until we are resurrected with glorified bodies and out of this world will we be perfectly sin-free. Dr. Brown, my, my, I also mentioned, doesn't Paul state, I forgot chapter, um, that those who say they do not have sin have full, deceived themselves? No, that's 1 John 1. That's 1 John 1. 1 John 1, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those, yeah, so, those, so John's well. already laid that out. <clears throat> so you can challenge your friends <clears throat> based on their reading of 1 John 3 and say, well, how is it you can sin at all right now? based on that verse. Where does it say growing, maturing? It doesn't. It doesn't. So the principle is a truly born-again person cannot live in, in persistent sin and disobedience. They're going to either have to repent and humble themselves before God or walk away from God, all right? Uh, but the idea that we, look, we strive to be sinless. Every day I don't say, I think I'm going to sin today, maybe like three times or 11 times or once. Uh, no, I mean, if you love the Lord, you don't think like that. Every day you want to please Him and honor Him, but we fall short. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 demolishes the view they're trying to present. So then based on that, what is John saying in 1 John 3 and 1 John 5? 
then that's what we have to find out. The other thing is, why does virtually every book in the New Testament, all the letters, why do they all deal with sin in the camp? And why does Revelation keep dealing with sin in the camp if we could reach perfection in this world? We strive for it. That's our goal, right? But the reality is we still fall short. Thank God for the blood. Hey, what about praying the Lord's Prayer? Why are we praying for forgiveness of sin if we never sin? We don't justify sin. We don't minimize it. But we understand that we still fall short in this world. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Paul in Ohio. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, um, this is Paul. Can you hear me? Uh, are you speaking right into the phone, not on speakerphone or Bluetooth? Oh, hold on a sec. Hold on. Ah, there, okay. we, there we go. Can you go hear ahead. me now? That's better. Okay, okay, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, this is my first time, so sorry for stirring a bit. Um, We're good. Okay, We're good, so man. I have, two, uh, I have two questions. Uh, the first question is, um, let's, let's answer the first question. The first question is, um, you see, uh, you see, I've, what I've noticed as a foreigner in America is that some some Americans would use the the fact that the the fact that the Nazis put the um, put homosexuals in concentration camp in concentration camps, uh, you know, during the Holocaust as a way to justify uh, as a justification for. Um, for uh, supporting the LGBT agenda, uh, because like you know, I have a lot. I have a couple of friends who are uh, very, who are rightfully against the LGBT agenda, but then uh, they've been attacked because they've been called Nazis because, like you know, because Hitler and the Nazis also put the gays in concentration camps during World War II. So, um, how can you? Uh, so basically, you're a Nazi if you're not a. Basically, in their eyes, you're 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 pretty much a Nazi if you do not support LGBT agenda. You could turn so around and say, you, right? You could turn around and say, actually, you're being the Nazi because Hitler opposed freedom of religion. You're being the Nazi. Yeah, but right. So in, you, in other words, so in other words, you want it. All they're doing is name calling. All they're doing is name calling. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So you just like, you why, respond, why? Paul. You simply say, who's putting you in concentration camps? Who is killing you? Nobody. You're free to live your life. Just don't push it on everybody else. Simple answer. Mm-hmm. Who's putting you in concentration camps? Mm-hmm. Who's trying to kill but, you? But still, what? I'm still trying to figure out how we can still defend our Christian position on LGBTism. Because uh, the Bible is because the Bible is explicit on it. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Homosexual mm-hmm. practice is always sinful in God's sight in every circumstance. Amen. The Bible's Amen. perfectly clear. But, so, you, so I, I, I'm not, I want to try to help, but I'm not following. If you know what the Bible says, and you know we're not trying to kill people or put them in concentration camps, so mm-hmm. then what's the issue? The world yeah, is not going to accept our reasoning. The world is the world. People are going to hate us and despise mm-hmm. us for our viewpoints. You know, the darkness is always going to hate the light in that respect. So many things that we believe are scorned and mocked by the world. We can't convince them. We pray for, you know, we just try to be good friends, love people, and, and win them to the Lord. Right. Right. All right. Okay, thank you for answering the, uh, the first question. The second question is going to be shorter. Okay, so 
that being said, um, you see, I, I found that a lot of Americans use the Holocaust as a, you, they, you know, misuse the Holocaust, the, you know, the, arguably one of the most horrific events in world history. Mm-hmm. And it's disgusting how some people use that for their own agendas. Like, for example, what I just mentioned earlier, how like some LGBT uh, people would use um, the Holocaust as a justification for pushing... Right. Uh, Right. So, uh, so Paul, what happens is we get into a lot of rhetoric and and we cheapen things. For for example, uh, if you voted for Donald Trump, people will call you a Nazi. It's like, listen, listen. You, you you may like President Trump, you may not. You may disagree with people who voted for him. You may agree with people who voted him. But the rhetoric, when any side uses these these types of of terms and, and words, uh, we we really cheapen the ugliness of of what happened. You know, it, 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 it'd be like, uh, you know, people today just if, if um, you feel I'm trying to push your, your views down, that you, you call me a slave trader or something like that. You know, there are things that were absolutely horrible, that were wicked, that were on a certain scale and a certain level that were so despicable that we have to be careful not to cheapen that sense of evil. Uh, so you're right, Paul. We, we, can, we can do that. Uh, and, and the key thing is, listen, let, let us not diminish the evil of a Hitler or the evil of a Holocaust by trivializing it. But we've done that widely. We just throw these words around and it trivializes the evil that came before. All right. Thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Other side of the break, we will get to as many calls as we can. Stay right here. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us dive right back to your calls. Uh, James in Arkansas, welcome to The Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, thanks so much. You're welcome. Hey, just a quick quick question I just wanted to get your clarity on. Uh, I know that obviously we're not under the Sinai Covenant, but I have some ultra-liberal friends that take that another step to say basically sins like fornication, drunkenness, you know, et cetera, are, well, acceptable might be a strong word, but they're basically saying don't worry about it as, uh, because we're no longer under the Sinai Covenant. Now, obviously, they're taking that to the extreme. So I just want to get your follow-up comment on that, since we're not under, obviously, the Sinai Covenant, but we still can't, you know, murder, steal, etc. And then just a really quick follow-up question to that is if you believe on the uh, uh, Fourth Commandment, as far as the Sabbath rest, do we still have a Sabbath rest in Christ? Right, so the second question, right, second question, because we've been asked that hundreds of times, just go to my website, AskDrBrown.org, AskDrBrown.org, and just type in Sabbath, and you'll get teaching, explanation, or position on that, all right? As, as to the question of your friends, uh, 
they are in 100% error and completely in violation of, of what the New Testament clearly says. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul makes plain that those who practice sexual sin, there's adultery, there's fornication, there's homosexual practice, but listed separately, will not enter the kingdom of, of God. In, in Colossians 3, Paul says, rid yourself of everything of the flesh, die to it. What's on the list? Sexual immorality, which is a separate word from, from adultery. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, just start there. Just, that's all you need. Start reading Ephesians 5 and verse 1, which tells us to, to imitate the Lord, and there should be no hint, there should nothing be even mentioned among us having to do with, with uncleanness, and explicitly, again, mentions sexual immorality. So the Greek word porneia, which is referring to uh, sexual sin outside of wedlock, and adultery is sexual sin within wedlock. So it is forbidden by the New Testament, and those who live like this, it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only so in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 19, Matthew 15, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said that the things that come out of our heart defile us and make us unclean. And there he lists sexual immorality. Again, in fact, it's porneia in the plural, meaning every form of sexual sin outside of marriage. And then adultery, sexual sin within marriage. So the New Testament actually ups the ante. The New Testament raises Correct. the standard. And of course, by their logic, they can they could right. murder and steal just the same. I mean, it's the same ridiculous logic. So all this is is looking for an excuse to sin. It is nothing other than looking for an excuse to sin and indulge the flesh. If they are serious about following Jesus, they'll repent, give this up. Just read with them some of these passages. Sit with them. Read Ephesians 5 first, but what does it say? What does this mean? How do you live this out? Read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. What does this say? Live this out. I mean, these are explicit. There's so many other calls to holiness and purity, but these are explicit, which all mention porneia, sexual sin, outside of wedlock. May God help your friends to get serious here. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Hal in Charlotte. Thank you for calling the line of fire. Yes, my question is regard uh, to Matthew 27, yes, sir. verse 46, mm -hmm. and uh, Psalm 22, 1. Okay. You're saying uh, on a former broadcast that it, uh, that Matthew is quoting from Psalm 22.1, or Jesus is on the cross. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew uh, 27, verse 46, uh, Shabbatani, or Swaktana, is used, whereas in the Psalm, it's A-Z-A-V. It's, Ar it's Aramaic. He's speaking in Aramaic. Eli, Eli, Lama, uh, Shavaktani is Aramaic, and in the psalm, it's Eli, Eli, Lama, Azavtani, that's Hebrew. And you're saying it means the same thing? Yeah, yeah, as Matthew translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, Matthew tells us what it means. But if I uh, left some bread for you, have I abandoned the bread? In other words, you can leave for a purpose, for a destiny, um, the, the word the Aramaic Shavak and Hebrew Lazov mean to forsake, to abandon. Yeah. But it's, can it's it mean word. to uh, leave for a purpose? In other words, I will leave you the book on the nightstand. Well, then you wouldn't cry out. You wouldn't cry out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? So you're saying Matthew got it wrong? Is that your point? 
No, my point is that the translation is wrong in Matthew twenty-seven, forty-six. No, it's not. It's, it's, no, it's not. I mean, this is my field. It's it's not wrong at all, and that's what the whole cry on the cross is. That it seems as if he's been abandoned. It's a cry of defeat or a cry of triumph. At that point, it's a cry drawing attention to the sense of abandonment, and then God's great deliverance that comes at the end of the psalm. It is and so not he told, of, you will leave me, you'll forsake me, but my Father will be with me. I can wait, call can, can, I ask you, can I ask you a question? Do you yes, actually want to know the truth? Uh, yes, I do. I'm uh, guaranteeing you that that's what the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic say. And that's why every translation translates it that way. No, Lanza doesn't translate it that way. Vic Alexander doesn't Lam- translate Lanza's it that not a translate. Okay, okay, so listen, here, here's the whole problem, is that you really don't want to know. Lambs is not translating the Greek. Lambs is translating the Peshitta, which is a translation of the Greek. Okay? Look at every recognized translation of the Hebrew of Psalm 22. Look at every translation of the Targum, the Aramaic paraphrase. I'm trying to help you. All right, so obviously you're asking a question because you want to prove a point. I reject your point. The Hebrew is clear. The Aramaic is clear. The Greek is clear. Nobody's mistranslating it. And the whole psalm, the whole context is keep reading. It seems as if he's abandoned. He's giving a sense of the spiritual pain that he's taking for us, for our sins. And then out of that, what comes to the end of the psalm? The great victory, deliverance from the jaws of death that brings praise to the ends of the earth. Real clear. Real clear. Hey, thank you for asking. And yeah, we got time. Let us go to Connor in Colorado. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Michael Brown. I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I've been watching some of your debates online, and I praise the Lord for, uh, for what you've been doing. Thank you. Hey, so my question is, and this isn't a question of um, uh, or an issue of faith for me. I just wanted to get some clarification, knowing your background yeah. and uh, your knowledge, uh, is about the creation story in Genesis. Uh, coming up from a young young Earth creationist background and kind of reading the story itself, I feel like a lot of the young Earth creationists nowadays, I think, take too many liberties when they interpret Genesis and say that it's implying a lot of things that I don't see it necessarily implying, and I just wanted to know what your take on the creation story is. Is there is there a chance for us to interpret it uh, with more theological truth than it is literal truth of this is yeah. exactly how it's done with six days, and I'd just like to hear your... Yeah, your I, I allow the scientific debate between young Earth creationists and old Earth creationists to take place on its own. In, in other words, I'm not a scientist. I've had brilliant people on my show, who are young earth creationists and who are old earth creationists. If you say, why do you have the old earth creationists on more? Well, they've been in touch with me more and asked about coming on, and so I'm happy to do it. But uh, I'm not qualified to debate the scientific issues. But decades ago, while I was at NYU doing my my graduate studies there, my my master's and doctoral studies, and immersed in ancient Near Eastern literature, I asked myself a question, which was, why were the ancient cosmologies written? Why did the ancient groups write stories about creation? Was it to give scientific knowledge? Obviously, whatever scientific knowledge they had was quite bogus about 
the origins of, of the universe. But was that the purpose? No, it was to point to the supreme deity that they worshipped and why this deity was higher than that one and why this deity had this role or that role. In other words, it was to convey theological truth about their idolatry. When I stepped back and read Genesis 1 again, in those terms, the, the, the chapter just exploded with light and insight and revelation. And, you know, God being the one who brings light out of darkness, who brings order out of chaos, who creates everything to reproduce after its own kind, to thrive. You know, even, even the, when you start going through the rest of Scripture about light and darkness and the imagery of that, which starts in Genesis 1, when you look at, say, God causing the, the, the waters to gather together in one place and, and it just seems like a little thing, and then you look at the rest of Scripture where this is this great triumph over the powers of chaos and, and how they're depicted elsewhere, that when I look at this, I realize it's, it's there for other purposes, and that's what I focus on when I read it. So honestly, I let the scientists debate the age of the earth and I could easily go either way based on Hebrew in terms of the creation accounts and the way they're referred to poetically in other parts of, of the Bible. I could make an argument either way for, for young earth or for old earth. But for many, many years when I have read the text, I have concentrated on theological meaning. I have concentrated on spiritual insight. I have concentrated on what can I learn about God, the Redeemer, the Creator, through this, even his acts of restoration that, that we learn in terms of how he's a redeemer. So focus on reading it like that and then look at the rest of how scripture looks back at it, aside from mentioning six days, etc. Look back at how the rest of scripture sees this and it's rich and beautiful and scriptural. Hey friends, check out our latest articles, videos at askdrbrown.org. See you on Monday.